would turn with me uh, again this morning to Ruth chapter 1, as we will be uh, considering the next portion of the story here in the book of Ruth, beginning in verse 6, and we'll make our way through to verse 18. So as you find your way in your copy of God's Word to Ruth chapter 1, verse 6, I'd ask that you would follow along with me as I read these verses. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is, very, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she had determined to go with her, she said, no more. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, we ask that you would help us, Lord, as we sit under the authority of your word, this sufficient, inspired, true word. Lord, help us to know who you are, Lord. Call us to the lives that you would have us to live before you in this world. Lord, I pray that we would be changed, not by anything that we say or do in our own strength, but by your word before us and your spirit within us. Lord, we commit this time to you. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable before you. Amen. Uh, Adoniram Judson was one of the first modern-day missionaries to be sent out from America. He left with the intention of serving in India, but in God's providence, in 1813, he arrived by ship in the country of Burma, which is today known as Myanmar. Judson has uh, been inspirational to my life and ministry. Uh, and his life was marked by great suffering. 
as was the case with most of the first of the, the modern-day missionaries. He buried both his first and second wife there. He buried several children there. He was imprisoned for 17 months and was forced to live in cruel circumstances. He came out of prison and had a complete and utter mental breakdown where he lived in the jungle for seven months where he dug a grave. And he lived in that grave for several months. But in God's grace, God restored him and allowed him to live many lives, uh, many, many years there in Burma, uh, reaching the people there with the gospel. The end of his life was not climactic. He died aboard a ship. None of his loved ones were there with him. He was buried at sea uh, by a group of sailors. And we look at the life of someone like Judson who gave of his life and the life of his family for the sake of the gospel, and we, we wonder, why does God allow suffering in our lives? What is the purpose of our suffering? This tremendous saint, this one who gave so much for the cause of Christ and his life was, was marked by great suffering, suffering that some of us in this room will never have to face. And what we need to know this morning is that a biblical, Christ-exalting, God-centered understanding of suffering will help us to answer this question. What is the purpose of our suffering? But before we can answer that question this morning, we need to deal with the text. And I want us to understand Naomi's journey through suffering. As we consider the context of verses 1 through 5 that we looked at last week and the plight of of Naomi, as we read through verses 6 through 18, I hope you could sense that God is at work in the midst of Naomi's suffering. So what do we come to see here in these few verses, in this journey that Naomi is on about suffering? Well, first we come to see this. God's mercy flows from suffering. A good theology of suffering recognizes who God is in and through suffering. His nature is made known to us in and through suffering, and primarily his mercy is revealed to us in suffering. And although it is difficult to find his mercy or pinpoint his mercy in the midst of a season of darkness, make no mistake about it, his mercy is there. Several weeks ago, Brother Andy quoted William Cooper's hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, and it is fitting again this morning. Listen to what Cooper said of God's mercy in the midst of suffering. The second verse of that hymn says this, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. The next verse says this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And so we think of verse 1 from last week when it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And we think of verse 5, And both Mahlon and Chilion died so that the woman Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We left the text last week and it seems hopeless that all hope is lost. And yet in verse 6, the tide has turned. 
God will intervene on behalf of his people in the midst of their suffering in the face of his judgment. Last week when we did a a quick overview of the book of Judges, and we saw time and time again the nation of Israel rebelling against God, something that we did not highlight is in the earlier parts of the book of Judges, the people will repent of their sin, and what does God do? He sends someone to deliver them. We see his mercy manifest itself in the midst of his judgment, and we see that happening here in verse 6. Notice four important words that you see there in verse 6. My translation uses the words arose, return, heard, and visited. First it says Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law. She takes action in the middle of her grief She is most certainly right in the heart of the mourning process. We see this in this bitterness that she speaks of in verse 13 and that we'll consider next week in verses 19 through 22. She is wrestling with the weight of her situation and to some extent questioning God why he has put her in this position. But in the midst of her suffering, she takes action. She arises from her situation. And what does she do? She returns from the country of Moab. This word return in the Old Testament is used to speak of repentance. Repentance literally means to turn away from sin and follow after Jesus. Last week we talked about how repentance is the remedy for rebellion over and over. When God's people rebel, what does he call them to do? To repent. And here we see Naomi repenting and turning from Moab. This place, this region, this people of sin and rebellion that her husband set their family towards. Now she repents of Moab to turn where? To Judah, as we'll see here in a moment in verse 7. She repents of her sin and she turns to the promises, the covenants of God. Why does she do this? Why does she arise and return from Moab? Because she had heard something. She had heard in the fields of Moab a message of good news. When this word here is used in the Old Testament, it is to speak of a message of good news that the people of God are to receive. And so we think of Deuteronomy 6 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is a great message for the people of God to hear. And in this moment of suffering, Naomi gets a word that the Lord has intervened on her behalf. Her state is turning from that of hopelessness to now we have a glimmer of light. What is it, though, that she heard? She heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. This word visited throughout the Old Testament is used to speak of a divine action, a divine intervention from God that produces great change in his people. And this change can be either for good or for ill. So when the Lord visits his people in the Old Testament, it is primarily for one of two things. It is either for mercy or for judgment. And don't miss this. Verse 1 was the judgment. But verse 6 is full of the mercy of God. The Lord had visited his people, and what did he do? He gave them food. What was the judgment? There was a famine in the land. 
And so the position of Naomi was about to change for her good because God had visited his people. He had intervened on their behalf. He had relented of his judgment and shown them mercy. And if God does not intervene on behalf of Naomi, she would have died in the land of Moab. But she also would not have known of the sweetness of the mercy of God apart from her suffering. You see, church, Scripture teaches us that without suffering, we cannot know of the mercy of God. And we see this primarily in the cross of Christ. It is by suffering that we are made right with God. There is no mercy for the sinner if there is no suffering of the Savior. Christ had to suffer and die on the cross in our place so that we might have eternal life. And this is why the writer in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says this, For it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This view of suffering and understanding it through the lens of the cross of Christ calls us this morning to have a higher view of our suffering. We need to have a higher view, a Christ-exalting view of suffering. We are so eager for comfort in our day, especially as Americans, as we pursue after the American dream, that we lose sight of God's goodness in the face of suffering. Any hint of discomfort, we despise. And so we we try in our own power to be as comfortable as we can, missing out on what God has in store for us in the midst of storms in this life. Because we know this, God always uses trials for his purposes. To reveal himself to us. And when we understand this, it helps us to suffer well. Whatever you are facing today or whatever you will face in the coming days, know this. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, even in the midst of suffering. We also come to see here that a God-centered view of suffering produces growth or If we use a fancy theological term, a God-centered view of suffering sanctifies God's people. Initially there, in verse 7, the girls accompany her. And again, notice where they are going to, to Judah. So she repents from Moab to return to Judah, the promised land. And on this brief moment of journey, Naomi has a, a moment of clarity. And she realizes that the, the, the situation for these two girls will not be a good one if they return with her to Judah. It would be better for them to return to their homeland, to Moab. So the first um, time she tries to persuade them, she does so in a more positive tone. There in verses 8 and 9, she simply says to them, Go. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you. May he grant you rest and security. In a husband, we'll see here in a moment why this is important, that they find this security of of having a husband. But notice, too, at the end of verse 9, how emotional this is. It's not very often that the writer of the narrative of Scripture gives us 
uh, inside look to the emotions of the character, but characters, but we feel the weight here of the situation, the emotion of the situation. And the girls, their initial response, Orpah and Ruth, is that they tell her no there in verse 10. We will not return with you, or we will return with you to your people. And so the, the resolve of Naomi is heightened as she again tells them to go back. But this time, she does so from a more negative tone. She tells them twice to turn back. She says, go your way. She says, I have no sons in my womb. And then she literally says to them, will you wait for this old woman to have sons? It's quite comical how she's talking to them. But this is important for them to understand that they will not find success in Judah like they will in their homeland in Moab. Naomi understands there is no hope for them if they join her on this journey. I think you're probably aware of this, but we need to understand in this day being husbandless was, was almost like a death sentence. The woman was completely dependent on her husband to survive. There were no jobs to be had in this day. And so to be husbandless was, was a terrible thing for them. And this is even more so true for them being Moabite women in Judah. And so this is why in Jewish law, God makes a provision for the people in his law. When a, when a husband dies, that God tells the people who is the one who is to marry the woman, not just to keep the name of the husband going, but also to provide for the needs of those who are left behind. And this is where we come to know the idea of the kinsman redeemer, which will come to play a really important role in this story. But here in these moments, Naomi wants them to know what a great cost it will be for them to return with her to the promised land. And so... As we read this from Naomi, we, we get a sense that she has a certain resolve about her. And really, she has a good perspective on the situation. I think more importantly, what we see here about Naomi is that she has a God-centered view of her suffering. Look what she says there at the end of verse 13. She says what? The hand of the Lord has gone out. She has a big view of God. This is not by chance or happenstance that she finds herself in this situation. She attributes her plight to God and God alone. This is so important in our suffering. We may not understand the why behind our suffering, but we may most certainly know the God who is behind our suffering. And so people who have a small view of God will not suffer well. This is not the case for Naomi. She has a big view of God. Now, she's not perfect in the situation. She is, uh, confesses her bitterness and, and questioning why God has allowed this to, it, to happen. But she at least understands that God is sovereign in all things, including her suffering. I titled this sermon, A Theology of Suffering. This is, though not an in-depth study of what suffering is, we're simply going to let the text speak for itself. But I, I think it's important for us here for just a moment to identify what types of suffering there potentially are in the life of the Christian. We could suffer because of persecution. 
outsiders who hate and despise us could cause suffering. We could suffer just from a a more natural sense that we live in a fallen and a broken world. Or as we talked about last week, that we feel the effects of the sin in our land and the judgment of God in our land. Or there is a type of suffering that is a direct connection to the discipline of God, the correction of God, the chastisement of God. And it is quite clear to us here why Naomi is suffering. Naomi is suffering as a direct result of the sin of her husband, the rebellion of her husband. She has come under the judgment and discipline of God. So then notice, though, what she goes on to say there at the end of verse 13. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. A God-centered view of suffering understands that all suffering is meant for our correction whether it's because of persecution or, or, or a, a, just the natural world that we live in or a correction from the Lord, all of the trials that we face in this life are meant to correct us and make us more like Jesus. She is here in this situation because of her husband, and she has every right to point the finger of blame at him. And yet what does she do? She confesses that her suffering is meant for her correction. Don't miss this. Every burden that we face in this life is meant to make us more like Jesus. I love what Matthew Henry had to say about Naomi here. He says this, She judges herself chiefly aimed at in the affliction, that God's quarrel was principally with her. And so Henry paraphrases Naomi here, and he says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I am the sinner. It is with me that God has a controversy. It is with me that he is contending. I take it to myself. Henry goes on to say, This well becomes us when we are under affliction. Though many others share in the trouble, yet we must hear the voice of the rod as if it spoke only against us and to us not belittling the rebukes of it at other people's houses, but taking them to ourselves. We, we touched on this last week when we talked about David in Psalm 38. I, I want us to turn our attention again to, uh, to David in Psalm 139, where he famously pins this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And we read that and we probably think to ourselves what caused David to pin those words was a season of sin and rebellion in his own own heart. But if you read the psalm there, what is the context? David pins these words because he's facing persecution. Those who hate him and despise him are persecuting him and looking to kill him and destroy him and he sees it as an opportunity to repent of sin and turn again to the Lord. He has a God-centered view of his suffering. We we see this with Job. Job has a God-centered view of suffering, and it doesn't take long in the book of Job to see this. Right away, at the very beginning of the story, in Job chapter 1, when Job loses all of his children and most all of his possessions in one afternoon, what does Job say there in Job chapter 1? He says, the Lord gave, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And so it's no surprise to us later in the story of Job in chapter 11 where his friend Zophar comes to him and mocks him and says, Job, you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. Job grows in his suffering by evaluating his life even though he was walking in righteousness. And we know what God was doing behind the scenes in the midst of Job's suffering. And so Job sees it as an opportunity to ask two questions of himself. Is my doctrine pure, Lord? And am I clean in your eyes? This is the prayer of David. Lord, see, search me and know my heart. Try my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Job saw this great season of pain in his life as a season of reformation for the soul. This is what it means to have a God-centered view of suffering. Where we say, Lord, make me more like Jesus in the midst of this storm. And so when we look out in our church and in our families and in our communities and we see others suffering, we need to be careful not to act like Job's friends did and point the finger and say, this is what's wrong. You need to correct this in your life. Rather, we need to pr just simply pray for people, encourage people, not assume that we have the answers for them in their suffering. We are not God. I had a professor at seminary in one of my pastoral ministry classes. He said, when you go into the home of someone who's just lost a loved one, do not t tell them what to do. Just sit there and be with them. Pray with them. Encourage them. But don't assume that you know why they're facing what they face. This is also true when we suffer. We should not assume that we have all of the answers for ourselves. It could be God's broader judgment around us. It could be because of persecution that we're suffering. It could be because of God's discipline. But in all aspects of suffering in this life, we must see it as a chance to evaluate our lives and to seek the Lord to see if there is any wrong in our doctrine, any wrong in our practice, any wrong in our actions, because suffering is meant to make us more like Jesus. This doesn't mean that suffering is going to be easy. But we must have this God-centered view of our suffering if we are to suffer well. Finally, though, we see in this text that God draws people to himself through suffering. Look at verse 14. What does Orpah do? Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and leaves her. It's interesting here how earlier, after Naomi's first request, she kisses the girls and then they weep together. Here, they weep and then Orpah kisses her as a sign of what? She's returning to Moab. And I would say Orpah is not making a wrong choice here. In fact, she She's probably making the more sensible choice. There's not a future for her to be had in Judah. If she is going to live a life that has any worth or value, she needs to return to Moab. And she does. But notice what Ruth does. Ruth clung to Naomi. This word cling speaks to a firm loyalty or affection. It is an intimate connection. And in spite of this, one final time in verse 15, Naomi makes her last push to encourage Ruth to return to Moab. But then in verses 16 and 17, there's a shift in the story. We shift from Naomi being the primary character to Ruth. 
we see a confession in Ruth that shows a resolve that she too shares. She is resolved to face whatever may come to return with her to Judah. And this is so important for us not to miss this. Ruth is fully aware in verses 16 and 17 of all that she's committing to. So what is she committing to? First, she says there, where you go, I will go. Again, where is she going? She's going to Judah, the land of promise. She's leaving behind the land of rebellion and sin in Moab. She goes on to say, where you lodge, I will lodge. This is not a temporary sojourning that she's committing to. She is committing to give herself permanently there in the land of Judah. And we see it in the next thing that she says where she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. This is, in a way, a direct rebuke of Naomi where in verse 15, Naomi said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. But Ruth says here, that will no longer be my people, and the gods of the Moabites will no longer be my God. Rather, Yahweh will be my God. Finally, she shows this lifelong commitment where she says there, where you die, I will die and be buried. This bodes well for us coming out of Genesis, where we saw Abraham going to great lengths to secure a burial place for his his family in the promised land. She is giving her life to the land of Judah But then the last part of verse 17 is the strongest words she uses as she swears, she makes an oath in the name of Yahweh, the personal name of God. Far stronger words than anything that Naomi has said at this point. She says, if I break my promise, may death come to me. So don't miss this. Ruth is not just declaring her allegiance to Naomi. Ruth is not just declaring her allegiance to Israel. Ruth is declaring her allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is her confession of faith. Matthew Henry speaks into this relationship here between Orpah and Ruth, and, and he says this, Orpah's kiss showed she had an affection for Naomi. And was loath to part from her, yet she did not love her well enough to leave her country for her sake. Thus, many have a value and affection for Christ, and yet come up short of salvation by him, because they cannot find in their hearts to forsake other things for him. They love him, and yet leave him, because they do not love him enough, but love other things better. And yet Orpah makes the sensible, expected choice. Ruth makes an extraordinary, unexpected decision. And when we compare these two women, we understand Orpah. It makes complete sense that she return to Moab. But hear this, we must emulate Ruth. When you declare your allegiance to Christ, it is a call to come and die. To leave everything behind and follow after Jesus. And so when I read Matthew Henry's words where he says, Many have a value and affection for Christ and yet come up short of salvation by him because they cannot find in their hearts to forsake other things for him, my mind immediately goes to the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, Keep all of the commandments. And what does the young ruler say? He says, I've done all of those things since my youth. 
And Jesus says, one thing that you lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And what does the rich young ruler do? He leaves saddened because he loves Jesus, but he loves the things of this world far more. You compare that to the disciples when Jesus comes to them at the Sea of Galilee and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they literally leave their nets behind on the beach saying, we will leave everything behind, all that we know, our livelihood, to follow after Jesus. So this is why Jesus says in Luke 14, and this should not be a surprise to us when he says this, Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. But don't miss this. How is it that Ruth has this opportunity to confess that Yahweh is her Lord? It comes by suffering. If all remains the same in the story and her husband doesn't die in verse 5, Ruth lives a prosperous life in the land of her birth and she dies. And we know nothing of her. This is the plot of Orpah, her sister-in-law. This is the last time we see Orpah here in the pages of Scripture. We do not know what happens to Orpah. We can probably assume that she went back to Moab and she found a husband, she had children, and she lived a great life in her homeland and died. We don't know this for sure. But friends, we do know for sure the significance of Ruth. Ruth, this Moabite woman, is written in the lineage of Christ. The promised one, the Messiah, the seed of Abraham comes by Ruth. God draws people to himself through suffering from every tribe and nation. And when we realize this about suffering, this impacts so much about how we suffer well. But one thing in particular is it impacts how we pray in suffering. When we're going through trials in life or even just the, the, the slightest hint of discomfort in our American dream, what do we pray? Lord, make it stop. I am just as guilty of this as you are. But church, when we affirm that God uses famines and storms and droughts and wars and even death itself to draw people to himself. Our prayers in the midst of suffering begin to sound more like this. Lord, make yourself known through the storm. Lord, let me make much of you in the midst of this storm. And so as we look at this journey in Naomi and Ruth's life together, we see three things. God's mercy flows from suffering. A God-centered view of suffering produces growth, and God draws people to himself through suffering. And so we go back to the beginning of the sermon to answer the question, what is the purpose of suffering in the life of God's people? And the answer is very simple. It is this. Suffering exists for our good and God's glory. Suffering exists to make known to us the riches of God's mercy. Suffering exists to make us more like our Lord and Master Jesus. Suffering exists to turn people to believe in the one true God. Do you know this to be true of God and suffering in this life this morning? 
I close by turning your attention back to Judson, who I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, who went to Burma. And his life was, was marred by tremendous suffering. But Judson's life was also marked by God's goodness and glory in Burma that is still seen to this day. There are people today in Burma, which is now Myanmar, who can attribute their salvation heritage to their great-great-great-great-grandparents who, who Judson led to Christ. There, there's still a testimony of Judson's faithfulness to declare the gospel to a lost and dying world in the church in Burma today. One of my greatest joys in life was worshiping alongside and serving alongside a brother in our church in Asia who was from Myanmar, born and raised, came to our country, got to worship with this brother for many years. And one Sunday I preached a sermon and I talked about Judson, and I did not know this about my dear brother. I knew he was from Burma. And after the service, he came up to me and he said, Brother Nathan, I'm a direct descendant of Judson. Judson led my great-great-great-great-grandfather, however long ago it was, to faith in Christ. And my family since then has all followed after Jesus. Something else about Judson that oftentimes people aren't aware of is his work in Bible translation. He worked diligently to translate out of the Greek and Hebrew into the language of the Burmese people. And they still use his translation to this day because it was so well done. Others have come, come along and, and tried to do a, another more modern translation and they stop because Judson's translation is so good. Some scholars have said that Judson's translation out of the Greek and Hebrew into a modern day language is one of the greatest translations ever done. Why do I share this with you? This is a man who suffered in tremendous ways and yet God used that suffering for the good of the Burmese people and for God's glory in Burma. So as we close this morning, I want to encourage you with this. Come what may, may we be found faithful. May we suffer well, resting in a sovereign king who is good and gracious in all seasons of life. To his glory alone. Let's pray.